I'm reading from Philippians 3, verse, 20, uh, verse 12 to verse 21, or into verse, looks like chapter 4, verse 1. Pressing on toward the goal, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we already have attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I've often told you before, and now say again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how we should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. May the Lord add his blessing to that reading. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Thanks for coming. I'll add my welcome to Bob's. Um, and yeah, Paul, um, Bob keeps saying he's off attending to some business. He's just having a break, so uh, that's where he is. But do pray for him. He and Karina have got, a, got away. No, they've just got away. Like a number of us, and maybe you've got away too, Evan's head. This weekend, there's no real nice place to be except under a blanket somewhere, but um, it's great to be together. We have been uh, working through Paul's letter to the Philippians, um, and so if you're just ducking in on us this morning, that's where we're diving into this morning. Um, we've looked at a little bit of this already last week, but it's all part of one big um, argument that Paul's making, so... Yeah, keep your Bible in front of you, or I'll keep it up on the screen, Pete, if you'd mind opening that again. And um, let's pray that God would uh, open up our hearts to receive uh, his word this morning. Loving Father, we give you great thanks that we can meet together. Thanks that we can meet around your word, your truth revealed um, through, through the people that um, met and knew Jesus, Lord, preserved for us. And here, in a way that we can understand, in our own language, in our own time, Lord, with the freedom to sit here and look at it, Lord, let us take none of these things for granted, but Lord, let us dive deep into your word this morning, Lord, with soft and open hearts, that we might really know you more and more deeply. 
We pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you know what it feels like to lose your footing? I don't mean metaphorically, but actually slipping and falling over. Who knows what that feels like? For some of us, it's a bit of a scary thing, particularly if we have bones that aren't going to cope well with that. I'm not going to pick on anyone of a certain age, but it's a real risk, isn't it? For younger kids, it's happening all the time. Skin off here, a broken bone there. It's a reality. I personally have convinced Tara and all of Tara's family that I'm very clumsy and accident prone. Even though it's been a long time since uh, my fall, my falls, I've convinced them that that's me. Eight or so years ago, we took a trip up to Townsville. And because Townsville is one of those cities in Australia that's basically riddled with crocodiles, you don't swim in the ocean. So in Townsville, they have this beautiful big ocean pool. It's not just like the ocean pools where you can go and swim laps. This thing is massive. And the seawater comes in there, the warm tropical water, but there's no crocs allowed. Anyway, we've gone there for a swim and I'm coming out of the change rooms and between the change rooms and the pool was a flight of stairs that was kind of made out of that, um, you know, like hardwood stairs and they were pretty well worn. I could see how slippery they looked. Tara warned me very clearly that they were very slippery. So I crept down these stairs so gingerly and so cautiously, I thought. But of course, what happened? They slipped. My feet went straight out from under me and I landed fair on this part of my hip and I got a bruise there that I think lasted about six to eight months. It was so painful. The rest of our holidays, I was limping around, sitting awkwardly and sleeping on my belly. Falling over is what happens when what we're standing on is unstable. A slippery step, a loose rock, a rotten floorboard or a sandy bit of path. I want to ask a question this morning. How can we live a Christian life without landing on our backsides? How can we stand firm in the Lord? Look at how Paul says it there in um, chapter 4, verse 1. We're starting at the end today. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love for and long for, My joy and crown, listen to this, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. See, like Bob reminded us at the beginning of the service, Paul's already really boldly said in chapter 1 to the Philippians, he said to them, for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, he's told them that he desires heaven, but it's much better for them that he remains. He's so close to death. He's so uh, at the end of his life that his vision is so focused on these people and they're enduring in their faith. They're going on. They're they're avoiding a big fall where they're going to land on their butts. He loves the Philippians so much. He wants them to stay strong in Jesus so much. In that verse, he says, it's his joy, it's his crown. That's how passionate he is about it. 
I'd like to say that's how we feel about each other here. That's the shape of our community, to see everyone grow in their faith, to see our lives transform continually. I meet up with Paul most weeks, and that's the tone of our conversations. That's the tone of our session. That's the tone of our committee of management. That's the tone that we take to things, that we, out of love, would see each other endure, take hold of the gospel, take hold of Jesus, that we'd stand firm, Stand firm in the good times and through the stormy times. The saddest thing in ministering to people, in sharing the gospel, in being in Christian community is to watch people lose their footing in Jesus. Giving up Jesus for sin rather than giving up sin for Jesus. Accepting those lies or half-truths about Jesus or just becoming complacent in our faith. See, our motivation in how we serve in this church is to do this, to encourage each other to stand firm. So we've got to think, how do we do it? Well, Paul's there said, stand firm in this way. So what is the way that he's talking about? Well, that's what comes at the end of chapter 3. See, what he's just told them in the end of chapter 3, he says at least three points that explains how we're going to stand firm. Isn't that helpful that we're not just left to guess for ourselves, but he says it right there. And these are the three points. They're the three points that make up your um, outline on the back of your sheet if you're following that. The first one, point one, our direction in life keeps us firm. That is our direction toward Jesus, maturing in our faith, pressing on toward the goal helps us to remain firm in our faith. Point two, who we model ourselves on will keep us firm in our faith. We need to have godly people who we're looking up to. And the third point, knowing who we are keeps us firm, knowing our citizenship, understanding that our true home is with Jesus. So we're going to look through those three points together from uh, verse 12 of chapter 3. Now, I've had a bit of blind luck in promotions run at IGA supermarkets. I don't understand why, but IGA supermarkets have been good to me. The first one happened not long after IGA opened in Evans Head. I bought a chocolate milk, and a week or so later, I got a phone call. I'd won this big bag of stuff that had a beach chair and a beach, um, beach ball and a beach bag and all this stuff to play games on the beach. Good. About 12 months later, I'd moved to Armidale and I, I don't know, spent a certain amount of money at the shop, gave them my receipt back with my name on it, get a phone call. About a month later, I'd won a barbecue, a little portable barbecue. Well, about a year later when they had a promotion going to win a car... I was shopping at the IGA all the time because I thought there's a pattern here, there's something to this. And guess what? I got a phone call. Legit, I got a phone call. And they said, come down here on this day. Now the trick was, me and about 25 other people had also got this phone call. And I'd been selected out of the barrel for the third time from the IGA but this time, with the 25 other people, I had to compete 
to try to win the car. Now, I got knocked out in the very first round. There was a little competition where you had a bucket and a ream of paper and you had to scrunch it up and throw it into the bucket. And I got outdone by pretty much everyone else. Now, why do I say this? As Christians, our prize, what we have in Jesus, is actually not something that we have to win. It's not something there for us to outdo someone else to take hold of. If you were here last week, that's what the start of chapter 3 is about. Go home and look through it again. People get confused on this. People have got confused on this for centuries. But what, what we receive from Jesus is by grace alone. It's merited to us not on our ability to perform, but it's merited to us out of God's own mercy. The prize was won for us. And Paul's pretty clear about what that prize is right here. It's the resurrection from the dead. Because in the resurrection is victory over sin, is victory over death. It's done. Jesus has done it. And yet, Paul, in verse 13, says that he himself hasn't take, taken hold of this prize yet. Like I've already said, Paul is a man close to death. His perspective is very sharp because he knows, he can taste what lies ahead. He knows that the prize is his own resurrection. He knows that he's going to be coming into perfect relationship with his Saviour, coming out of this messy world and fully experiencing God's glorious kingdom. He says this is the prize that God is calling him heavenward. This is the most sure hope that we have as Christians. If there's no resurrection, then there's no point. This is our greatest prize. This is the X factor of Christianity. Jesus is a risen saviour who's beaten sin and death. Your faith in him gives you everlasting life with him in perfection. That's the goal. That's the prize that we take hold of. So what do we do about it? We'll have a look at verse 15 with me. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. Paul says we need to take focus on this. We need to take on this view that this is the prize. This is what we strive for. This is what we're longing for and hoping in. As parents, we're trying to not let Sonny, our three-year-old, watch too much TV. And I'm not going to um, go down that rabbit hole too much and tell you how to raise your kids or what you do with your grandkids and how much screen time to give them. But the issue with our three-year-old Sonny is that he's very much like his mum, Tara. Because Tara can get so fixated so quickly on what's on TV that she just zones out. Her eyes fixate on the screen. You know that I'm talking about you, don't you, mate? When we were newly married, we used to have the TV on a lot more than we do now. 
And we used to uh, have the TV on a lot more than we do now. And I'd be trying to say something to Tara, and she'd be glued on the TV. And I'm like, I thought it was, I thought it was a commercial break, and and it was. (laughs) In in less than 30 seconds, she'd be just just become glued on what's happening on the next episode of My Kitchen Rules or something like that. And Sonny is exactly the same. We went on a holiday uh, about oh, when he was about 18 months old with his older cousins and they watched TV probably more, a lot more than he does and he just thought it was amazing. He thought it was heaven. He was glued to the TV which was on most of the time. I've got this cute photo of him where he was actually sitting side by side with his cousin on a one-seater couch. So it kind of looked cute because they were snuggled in there together. And I tried to get his attention and he gave me a wave, but his eyes were just glued on the screen. Our focus on Jesus and what he's done in this life should be to that extent. Not out of some kind of obligation, but because if we can't fix our eyes on anything more perfect. We can't sharpen our direction in life on anything that will bring us anything better. Paul says here that he's forgotten about what's past He strains towards this because this is what's ahead. The most real thing in our whole existence is what Jesus has won for us. There has been a saying that you might have heard that someone might be too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Have you heard that, something like that before? Usually that's said of someone who doesn't quite seem to care very well for the people around them. Maybe they're so devoted to the, the church that they're involved with, to its meetings and functions and its programs, that they kind of neglect their neighbours or their family or the community around them. It's not true. Paul flips that kind of thinking on its head. Heaven is what we need to focus on, he says. That's the thing that will sharpen how we treat the people around us. Nothing else will sharpen our view of the world like that will. See, in this, Paul's telling us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope for us of our own personal resurrection is the most real thing that any of us can know. It is the most real thing that you can know. And this is maturity. This is what maturing looks like. Life that is fueled by the hope that comes through this. Just think about that word fueled. Think about what fuels your car. Fuel is pretty potent stuff. I'm talking about petrol now that you put into your car. It's not stuff to mess around with. It's powerful. Plenty of times I've snuck into Dad's shed and got a small glass of it when we're trying to start a fire. And you throw it onto the whatever you're trying to burn. And before you've even got anywhere where the liquid is, just the fumes that are coming off it are so potent 
that you've got to be careful where you light your match, otherwise you can say goodbye to your eyebrows. One time I was driving, I was doing a bit of work down at McLean and around the Iluka turn off there, I saw a car that was on fire and pretty close to the time that I was driving past it, and it had got to that point where the fire had reached the fuel tank and you should have seen this thing burn, the heat that was coming off it, the light that was coming off it, the sound of the explosion and the petrol fuels our cars and keeps them moving. The resurrection of Jesus is the fuel that keeps you going. It's what Paul points to to keep us maturing. Knowing a risen saviour. Participating in his kingdom. And it's fuel that's not going to run out. It's going to burn and burn until all our passions are ablaze for him. So that passage that we keep coming back to in chapter 1, verse whatever it is, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you honestly say that with Paul? If you're honest with yourself. Because if we can't honestly say that, we're at risk of not standing firm in our faith. Our lives need to be consumed with the reality of Jesus, saturated by him. It's the focus. It's the direction. If, we're, if it's not, we're not maturing and we're not going to stand firm. But this is not apart from God's grace and mercy. Look at the end of chapter, uh, verse 15. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear. There's comfort right here that even if that's not our sharp focus, if our honest answer is that we can't echo that with Paul, we can take comfort that God is leading us that way, that we are going in that direction. God will make it clear to you, he promises. It's the reality that we're destined for. God will bring this into focus for us. So there we go. That's his first explanation of how we stand firm. Setting our direction towards heaven. That's how we're going to mature. That's how we're going to hold firm. So point two, who we model ourselves on determines if we stand firm. For the Philippians, Paul is their example. He's spent time with them. He's incredibly humble. He's persevered through all kinds of trials that they haven't had to go near. See, the second thing Paul tells us is we need to make sure we're around people who are mature in Christ. For me personally, I want to talk about Dave Pym. Now, a number of you uh, weren't around this congregation when Dave Pym was here. He moved up here in about the year 2000 and lived here for about four years. He was a young bloke from the north of Sydney who came up to Evans Head a number of times on SUFM, on Beach Mission, and just built a good relationship with the people here, with Paul and Karina, and Karina somehow convinced him that it was a good idea for him to move up here, and he worked as our youth pastor here for about four years. Now, when I say he worked here, he pretty much worked for nothing. I, I was still in high school at this stage, but I'm pretty sure in these days... 
Most of, or a good portion of our money to run our church came from the Ballina Presbyterian Church. So even paying Paul wasn't something that we could do. And so hiring a, a youth pastor was definitely something that we couldn't do. But that didn't stop Dave from living his life out here and from doing uh, that work here. In Dave, I could see real faith in Jesus. Just that fact that he could live here on practically nothing. He bought it at a few different people's houses or some properties that um, people from our church owned. And even though he was pretty well educated, I'm pretty sure by this stage he'd had a master's degree and could have been working in one, a big government department in Canberra and probably getting paid a pretty big salary. He lived here by choice, pretty much on air. He putted around in a beat-up old Ford Laser that only had one rear vision mirror. And despite all that, he worked with such diligence and consistency for all those years. Dave prized Jesus and the Word of God above all else. You saw it in how he prepared for things. When you turn up to a Bible study, he wouldn't have just worked out what it said. He would have worked out so clearly how to teach it to us, to the youth group at that stage. It wasn't just deep knowledge. It was an alive faith that you learned off Dave. And he was a really, really caring guy. For a young guy in his early 20s, the care and concern that he showed for people around him was well beyond his years. Earlier in Philippians, Paul's spoken about how humility, in humility, we ought to value others better than ourselves. And if you know Dave, I'm sure you'd agree with me that that's exactly what he was like. I remember one day... He was coming in to do a lunchtime group at our school. It was his birthday. I don't know, he would have been turning about 25, something like that. And that particular day, things were ruckus at school. The kids were hanging off the fans, had very little attention, very little respect for him. But he was so gracious about it. He took it in his stride. He didn't give up on it. He was back there the next week. For me personally... His example kept me following Jesus. I had a good bunch of schoolmates. They were good mates. But if that's all that I had, they would have dragged me away from Jesus for sure. Dave talked it and walked it. And he was a model to me. See, Paul says here that so long as someone is following Jesus, then we should model ourselves on them. Who are you looking up to? Who do you pattern your life on right now? We'll, we'll all look at someone. We do this comparing all the time. Paul's just saying here that make sure when we're doing that, we're doing it on someone who is mature, someone who is godly. If we, do it, if we model ourselves on someone who's kind of half-hearted or, you know, they're Christian but they're still a bit edgy and kind of, yeah, I'd kind of like to be like that, then we'll end up justifying all kinds of things that don't help us to stand firm. It's like the people who Paul talks about in verse, verses 2 and 3 of this chapter. There were people that around that spoke about Jesus but completely distorted the message of grace. He comes back to them in the passage that we're looking at. That's what verses 18 and 19 are about. 
For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says plainly that some people live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Why does he say it like that? Why does he say they're enemies of the cross of Christ? Why doesn't he just say they're enemies of Christ? Wouldn't that be easier to figure out? Well, these people were speaking about Jesus a lot. They looked Christian in one sense. But why he says the cross of Christ is because they'd moved away from the central message. They weren't people that talked about how Jesus has died to save you. These people that Paul was talking about were offended by the idea that Jesus alone could save you. They wanted to add back on all those Old Testament things. Now, I don't know that we're at much risk of that. We're always at risk of that. But the more prevalent risk that I reckon is to move away from a belief that we need a saviour at all. See, Paul reminds us that the cross is central to our faith. And that's what will humble us. That's what will teach us dependence. That's what strips our pride and our arrogance. If we're listening to the wrong teachers, if we're modelling ourselves on the wrong people, we'll end up with a weak view of Jesus. And we won't really know what to do with his death on the cross. It might serve as an example of some kind of love for us, but it's kind of weak. See, a good model for us is anyone, so long as they're putting their faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross for them. Standing firm by looking at godly people will show you faith in action. Well, that's the second thing. The final thing, standing firm happens when we remember our citizenship. Now, I'm like a lot of Aussies who've got a cheap holiday to Bali. Thank you, Jetstar. I've been there three times now. Has anyone else been there? A few people. You can put your hand up. It's a lovely place. Anyway, um, on our first visit there, we did lots of shopping, and it's kind of known for its cheap knockoffs of different things, um, like cheap T-shirts and uh, watches that don't last your whole trip and things like that. And pretty soon I realised that the Balinese shopkeepers were really good at spotting the Aussie. It's not that hard to play spot the Aussie because it's like more than half the tourists that are there. But not only had they been able to play spot the Aussie, they'd mastered our lingo. They could say, g'day mate, better than Crocodile Dundee. So one time I thought I'd, I'd kind of play with one of them. And as he said, g'day mate to me, I pretended that I was German and I can kind of half do a German accent, but I've got no words to say, so I'm not going to show you. But I kind of pretended back to him that I didn't understand what he was saying. Well, he picked it up straight away. And he said a word that I'm not going to repeat, but he said, no, bull, you're an Aussie. And I kind of ashamedly said, yeah, I am. See, our citizenship is written all over us. It's pretty easy to work out where someone's from. It's pretty easy to work out. We'll, we'll hear it as our Victorians come and visit. There's a different inflection in their tone, in their voice. You can spot someone from all different places, from different where they sit even in our society. The tone in our voice, especially with English people, isn't that true? It's obvious 
what, where we're citizens of. Well, look at verse 20, because this is where Paul takes us now. Our citizenship is in heaven. He says there, we belong to the Saviour. And who is this Saviour? Well, he's the King of heaven. That's where he is. He brings everything under his control. He is glorious. He says that he will transform us in glory. Now, in the context here, Paul is trying to remind them of this truth because they've been rocked and mucked around by the false teachers. He's saying this quite powerfully. Our citizenship is in heaven. Because by contrast, at the end of verse 19, their mind is just set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. The same is true for you and I. We can be lured into thinking that all the hope is found in this world. If we just sort this thing out better, if we just start a committee for this, if we put our hope in democracy happening here or getting a little bit more money to this or achieving equality with this group of people, we put our hope foolishly in these things. We can put our hope in our kids having a future where somehow they avoid the pitfalls that we've found along the ways in our life. We can make the mistake like so many did with Jesus and hope for a saviour to conquer the Romans or whoever seems to be the oppressor of us right now. See, Paul wants to remind us that hope for this world doesn't come from this world. None of these things will work because sin has flawed everything. It's, it's spread everywhere. There's nothing that it hasn't touched. Listen to Paul again. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from, from there. See, if your faith is in Jesus, then your citizenship is with him. Standing firm doesn't just happen. Our lives need to be maturing in our faith. And it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for six months or 60 years. We still need to be maturing. Our lives need to be modelled on faithful people who will live faithfully. And our lives need to live out that reality that we're really citizens of heaven. See, as Paul encourages the Philippians with this, he describes them as his joy and his crown. Paul's attitude, his heart for them, is that they would do nothing else but stand firm. To see them stand firm is literally his motivation for continuing to live at this point in his life. It's for them to to not fall away. His passion for them and for the gospel taking root in them isn't just words. It's his fight to live. Because of this prize, what God is giving him in the gospel, what gives us in the gospel, is so precious that it can take us to that level of motivation. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. It's so succinct. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, And then in his joy, he went and sold everything that he had and bought that field. 
When you're losing hope, when you're losing your footing, when Jesus is blurry and you can't see him clearly, remember what he's given you. You're forgiven. You're restored by a saviour who was motivated by his love for you. That he gave his position of glory up that he might pull us out of the chaos of this sin-ridden world and set us on a solid rock where we can stand firm with a sure hope of an eternity that is perfect. That's every bit that's good of this world made perfect and everything that's rotten about this world stripped away. Perfection, satisfaction, real joy. There's nothing greater than this. There's nothing incomplete about this. We must stay on the firm ground and live out our faith because what Jesus has for us as his followers is not only everything that we need, but it's everything that we truly desire. Let's pray to that end. Loving Father, we pray that we would be people that stand firm. We thank you for the clarity with which Paul shows us how we can do that. And we thank you that over all those things, you continue to treat us with grace and mercy. Lord, with your patience and love. Lord, I pray that for anything that's causing us to lose our footing right at this moment, Lord, that we'd lay that before you, that we'd trust you in that. Lord, I pray that, that you would take that away from us. Lord, I pray that you'd overcome our own sinfulness, our bias toward moving away from you to modelling ourselves on the wrong people, to forgetting that we're citizens of heaven and only having an earthly view of things. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness of those things. Lord, we pray that as we mature, we might see in our own lives and in our community the same resolve that we see in Paul, that to live is to know Christ and to finish in this life is to gain perfection with you. Lord, make that more and more real with every step and breath of our life. And Lord, help us to have the faith to trust you for such grand things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.